This is the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 1, Episode 5, The Conclusion of the History of the New Revised Standard Version. Last week, I covered the history of the English Revised and the American Standard Versions of the Bible. I also started the history of the Revised Standard Version. If you missed it, you really should go back and give it a listen. This week, I'll finish the Revised Standard Version and finally get to the history of the New Revised Standard Version. So let's get started. When the Revised Standard Version was being completed, there were many more ancient manuscripts of the New Testament, and the translators were better able to determine the original wording of the Greek text. Overall, it must be remembered that the evidence for the text of the books of the New Testament is still better than for any other ancient book, both in the number of existing manuscripts and in the closeness of the date that some of these manuscripts to when the book was first written. The revisers in the late 19th century relied on the same Greek texts that are used today, except for a few ancient ones discovered in 1931. However, while they had the same base text, their understanding of the ancient Greek language was less than what was available to the translators of the Revised Standard Version. Specifically, they lacked the later understanding of the vocabulary, grammar, and idioms of the Greek New Testament. For example, a remarkable body of Greek manuscripts have been discovered in Egypt since the late 1800s, including private letters, official reports, wills, business accounts, petitions, and other such trivial, everyday recordings of the activities of human beings. While these really added nothing to the biblical text, they provided an invaluable understanding of the language of the times. First published in 1895 by Adolf Diesmann, was a clearer understanding of many of the words found in those biblical texts which until then were misunderstood. Specifically, they provided an understanding of the common Greek that would have been used to write those texts in the first century. To dive a little deeper, the text used for the New Testament was written in what is referred to as Koine, which was the Greek spoken and understood practically everywhere throughout the Roman Empire in the early centuries of the Christian era. This development in the study of New Testament Greek occurred after the translations of the English Revised Version and the American Standard Version, and throughout the text allowed for a better translation into modern English, the language, not the band. An overriding motive for the revision of the King James Version, which is true for both the Old and New Testaments, is the change since 1611 in the English language usage. Many words have become archaic, and while still understood, do not present the text as easily understandable to the reader. The translators eliminated archaic forms of expression of English, which was not clearly understood by contemporary people. The use of such words as thou, thee, thy, and thine, and the verb endings est, etst, eth, and teth, made the King James Version difficult for most people to understand it. Specifically, more than 300 words in the King James Version are misleading in light of today's language usage. A larger problem was that some English words are still in use today, but their meanings have changed. While at the time they were accurate in translation, they now change the meaning of the scripture. Phrases and words such as let, in the sense of hinder, prevent meaning to proceed, conversation for conduct, comprehend for overcome, ghost for spirit, wealth for well-being, allege for prove, and take no thought for be not anxious. There were many more. For example, and while this word is only found in the New International Version, 
it does more clearly demonstrate the morphing of language over time. Think of the word decimate. I'll pause for a second so that you can conjure up the image of something that has been completely and utterly destroyed. After all, that's how we use the word today. But its original meaning was to reduce something by 10%. When you look closely, you see the root des, the same root word as the word decimal, decibel, decade, and numerous other words that refer to a factor of 10. Not quite the same. Just think, if you read an old text that stated that the English army was decimated at Waterloo, you would have thought they lost. But the writer may have been communicating something entirely different. The translators of the Revised Standard Version sought to correct such potential modern errors. There are three notable alterations between the Revised Standard Version, the King James Version, the Revised Version, and the American Standard Version. First, the translators reverted to the King James and the Revised Version's practice of translating the Tetragrammaton, also known as the Divine Name, Yahweh. In fact, the King James Version had used this in four places, but everywhere else, except in three cases where it was employed as part of a proper name, used the English word Lord, or in some cases, God, printed with capital letters. The American Standard Version had translated it Jehovah. In keeping with the 1611 and 1885 versions, the translators translated it as Lord or God, all caps. The Revised Standard Version was consistent with the King James Version, who followed the precedent of ancient Greek and Latin translators, as well as a long-established practice of the reading of the Hebrew Scriptures in synagogue. It is almost certain that the name was originally pronounced Yahweh, but this pronunciation was not quite clear when the Masorites added vowels to the Hebrew text. To the four consonants YHWH of the name, which they regarded as being too sacred to be pronounced, they attached vowels indicating that in its place should be read the Hebrew word Adonai, meaning Lord, or Elohim, meaning God. Then the ancient Greek translators used the word Kiros for the divine name, and the Vulgate, which we'll cover later, used the Latin word Dominus. The word Jehovah is of late medieval origin. It is a combination of the consonants of the divine name and the vowels attached to it by the Masorites. The sound of Y is denoted by J, and the sound of W by V, as it is in Latin. The Revised Standard Version Translation Committee returned to the more familiar usage of the King James Version for two specific reasons. First, the word Jehovah was not ever used in Hebrew. Second, the meaning of any proper name to the one and only God was supposed to lead some to believe that there were other gods from whom he had to be distinguished. and was ended in Judaism before the Christian era, it was entirely unnecessary in Christianity. That is, of course, if you assume the words Lord and God are not names, but instead titles. Okay, I'm going to step up on my soapbox for a minute. My personal opinion is that when someone creates a word like tetragrammaton, it is at least partially to make themselves seem better and smarter than others. The people that later choose to repeat the word are almost as guilty of the same infraction. But an unintended consequence is that it also serves to separate the word from the masses, and by word, I don't mean the word they created. The word is the word of God, you know, the word of the Tetragrammaton. Many people would hear the word, not understand it, and move on, and possibly move away. The word was, once again in my opinion, meant to be inclusive, not exclusive. Therefore, as an editorial note, 
When I happen across words such as these, I will define it, maybe even use it multiple times, but then try to use it rarely, if ever. Okay, I'm stepping down from that soapbox, at least for now, and back to the differences between the versions. A second difference was a change was made in the usage of the Old English for the second-person pronouns such as thou, thee, thine, in verb forms art, hast, hadst, and dist, and so on. The King James Version, Revised Version, and the American Standard Version used these terms in addressing both God and people. The Revised Standard Version used archaic English pronouns and verbs only for addressing God, a rather common practice for translations up until the 1970s. Third, for the New Testament, the Revised Standard Version followed the latest available version of Nestle's Greek text, whereas the Revised Version and the American Standard Version used the Westcott and Hort Greek text, and the King James Version used the Textus Receptus. Not to forget, in the book of Isaiah, they occasionally followed readings found in the newly discovered Dead Sea Scrolls. Similar to the other versions, the translation panel used the traditional Hebrew Masoretic text for the Old Testament. After much scrutiny and approximately 80 changes to the New Testament text, the first edition of the New Testament was published in 1946. The Old Testament, and therefore the full Protestant Bible, was published in 1952 on St. Jerome's Day. In later episodes, we'll find out why they wish to honor Jerome. Their very first copy was presented to U.S. President Harry S. Truman on September 26, four days before it was released to the public. The Apocrypha was published in 1957, The Catholic edition New Testament was published in 1965, with the entire Bible published the next year. A second edition of the New Testament was published in 1971. And an expanded edition of the Apocrypha was published in 1977. In addition, the Revised Standard Version served as the basis for two additional revisions. The New Revised Standard Version, published in 1989, and the English Standard Version, published in 2001. The translation was not without its own controversy, though. Specifically, many times in the book of Isaiah, where the word virgin appeared in earlier translations, it was replaced with young woman. Also, there were translation differences in the Psalms and Genesis. These controversies served to fuel the burgeoning King James-only movement, but they also are a bit too deep for this initial podcast and will be covered in the future. In 1957, the Episcopal Church in the U.S., asked that the deutrocanical books, there's another one of those words, commonly referred to as the Apocrypha by most Protestants, be added to the Revised Standard Version. There was no American Standard Version of the Apocrypha, so the Revised Standard Version of the Apocrypha was a revision to the Revised Version Apocrypha of 1894, and also the King James Version. The organization also desired to make the Revised Standard Version acceptable to Greek Orthodox churches, so an expanded edition of the Apocrypha containing 3rd and 4th Maccabees and Psalms 151 was released in 1977. This edition included the adjustment of archaic pronouns and verbs, including those used in the place of Lord and God. This was a change from the earlier Revised Standard Version that included the archaic for God. In 1971, the Revised Standard Version was re-released with a second edition of the New Testament, This edition was based on a thorough editing of the previous editions and used Greek manuscripts not previously available to the original Revised Standard Version translation panel. Specifically, the Bodmer Papyra, published between 1956 and 1961. The most evident changes included the reincorporation of Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, and John 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11, 
where Jesus forgives an adulteress. In the 1946 translation, these two sections were in the footnotes. Also reinserted was Luke chapter 22, verses 19 and 20, covering the majority of Jesus' creation of the Lord's Supper. In the 1946 text, this section ended with the phrase, This is my body, and the balance was found in the footnotes. The earlier version was due to the verse not being found in the original manuscript used by the translation committee. Numerous other sections were rephrased or rewritten for increased clarity and accuracy, and these also will be covered in later episodes. For the first time, even the Roman Catholic Church adopted the Revised Standard Version in 1966 to be used with the addition of the Apocrypha. The books of the Old Testament designated by the Catholic Church as being worthy to be read. When the Catholic Church adopted the Revised Standard Version, it was granted permission from the National Council of Churches of Christ in the U.S., the holder of the copyrights to this version, to include its own explanatory notes in an appendix. After the revision of the New Testament, the Standard Bible Committee intended to prepare a second edition of the Old Testament, but those plans were abandoned in 1974 when the National Council of Churches voted to authorize a full revision of the Revised Standard Version. And all of this lineage leads us to the New Revised Standard Version, the one that I will probably refer to the most. The New Revised Standard Version is the official revision of the Revised Standard Version. In 1974, the National Council of Churches, which holds the copyright to the Revised Standard Version, authorized a more complete revision of it, owing partly to the fact that the Revised Standard Version was completed before the Dead Sea Scrolls were available to scholars, and therefore could not have been considered for the Old Testament. Also, the version intended to take advantage of other manuscript discoveries and to reflect advances in linguistic scholarship. The version was translated by the Division of Christian Education, currently referred to as Bible Translation and Utilization of the National Council of Churches. The New Revised Standard Version Translation Committee consisted of 30 men and women who were among the top biblical scholars in the U.S. at that time. They were from Protestant denominations, the Roman Catholic Church, the Greek Orthodox Church, and included several women and a Jewish scholar. The New Revised Standard Version of the Christian Bible is an English translation that was first released in 1989. It incorporated four major changes to the Revised Standard Version. First, there was the updating of the language of the Revised Standard Version. Specifically, the Revised Standard Version retained the archaic second-person familiar forms, such as the words thee and thou, when God was addressed, but eliminated their use in other contexts. The New Revised Standard Version eliminated all such archaisms. In an included essay to readers, the translation committee said that, and this is a quote, Although some readers may regret this change, it should be pointed out that in the original languages, neither the Old Testament nor the New makes any linguistic distinction between addressing a human being and addressing the deity. Also, words whose meanings had changed significantly since the Revised Standard Version were adjusted. One of the more entertaining examples is that 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25 no longer stated that Paul was stoned once. Second, the committee sought to make the translation more accurately reflect the words in the original Hebrew and Greek text. Remember that this version is a word-for-word translation. Third, they worked so that it could be more easily understood, especially when it was read out loud. And fourth, clarifying where the original text intended to include all humans, both male and female, and where they intended to refer only to the male or the female gender, 
Specifically, the decision to translate some gender-specific words using more gender-neutral words in places where gender was not seen to be an issue, such as the use of the word people in the place of mankind. The goal of the translators was to be, and I'm quoting from the preface of the version, sensitive to the danger of linguistic sexism arising from the inherent bias of the English language towards the masculine gender. The version also sought to expand gender-specific phrases such as brothers into brothers and sisters. Despite the intentions of the translators to clarify, the issue of gendered language has proven to be quite contentious. And honestly, anytime someone seeks to clarify, especially something as old as the base text, the clarification is open to interpretation and subject to an individual's own biases. It was the first major version to use gender-neutral language and thus drew more criticism and ire from conservative Christians than did its 1952 predecessor. This criticism largely stemmed from concerns that the modified language obscured phrases in the Old Testament that could be interpreted as messianic, referring to the prophecy of the coming Messiah. In the preface of the version, Bruce Metzger wrote for the committee that, quoting again, Many in the churches have become sensitive to the dangers of linguistic sexism arising from the inherent bias of the English language towards the masculine gender, a bias that in the case of the Bible has often restricted or obscured the meaning of the original text. End quote. The Revised Standard Version observed the older convention of using masculine nouns in a gender-neutral sense, such as the word man instead of person and in some cases utilized a masculine word where the source language used a neuter word. Let me restate that for emphasis. The older versions used a masculine word, where the source version used a neuter word. The New Revised Standard Version was getting the words back closer to the source. However, the New Revised Standard Version utilized a policy of inclusiveness in gendered language. According to Metzger, the mandates from the division specified that, in references to men and women, masculine-oriented language should be eliminated as far as this can be done without altering passages that reflect the historical situation of ancient patriarchal culture. End quote. The New Revised Standard Version is different from many other modern translations in that it is as literal as possible in adhering to the ancient text while also being as free as necessary to make the meaning clearer in graceful, understandable English. However, I recognize that these two phrases, as literal as possible, and as free as necessary, are subject to the judgment of both the translator and the reader, as well as the critic. Of course, there is no right answer, and each is restrained by their own beliefs, biases, and the emotional connection to the version they hold most dear. But there will be more on this later. Also, the version draws on sources that became available after other translations and served to increase the understanding of previously obscured biblical passages. These sources include modernly uncovered manuscripts, the Dead Sea Scrolls, other texts, and archaeological finds, as well as more modern understandings of ancient Greek and Hebrew grammar. When it was published, the Revised Standard Version was the only major translation in English that included both the traditional Protestant books as well as the books that were traditionally used by Roman Catholic and Orthodox Christians, known commonly as the Apocryphal or Deuterocanical books. In keeping with this standard, the New Revised Standard Version was published in three formats, a standard edition without the Apocrypha, a Roman Catholic edition, which has the Apocryphal books in the Roman Catholic Canonical Order, specifically the Order of the Latin Vulgate, and the Common Bible, 
which included all the books that belonged to the Protestant, Roman Catholic, and Orthodox canons. There are also Anglicized editions of the New Revised Standard Version, which modify the text slightly to be more consistent with British spelling and grammar. The New Revised Standard Version is different from many other modern translations available today as the Bible translation that is most widely approved by the churches. Specifically, it received the endorsement of 33 Protestant churches, an official endorsement of the American and Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops, and the blessing of a leader of the Greek Orthodox Church, but not from the Greek Orthodox Church as a whole. Many of the older leading Protestant churches officially approved the version for both private and public use. Specifically, it is approved by the Episcopal Church for church services. It is also widely used by the United Methodist Church, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the Disciples of Christ, the Presbyterian Church USA, the United Church of Christ, the Reformed Church in America, and the United Church of Canada. The Catholic version has been approved by both the United States and Canadian Conferences of Catholic Bishops for use by Catholics privately in study and devotional reading. For public worship, such as at weekly Mass, most Catholic bishop conferences in English-speaking countries require the use of other translations, either the adapted New American Bible in the dioceses of the United States and the Philippines, or the Jerusalem Bible in most of the rest of the English-speaking world. However, the Canadian Conference and the Vatican approved a modification of the New Revised Standard Version for lectionary use in 2008. An adapted version is also under consideration for approval in Great Britain. The version, along with the Revised Standard Version, is one of the texts adapted and quoted in the English-language edition of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. In 1990, the Synod of the Eastern Orthodox Church in America decided not to permit the use of the version in liturgy or in Bible studies on the grounds that it is highly divergent from the Holy Scriptures traditionally read aloud in the sacred services of the Church. Though the National Council of Churches notes that the translation has the blessing of a leader of the Greek Orthodox Church. However, some of the most conservative and evangelical Christian denominations refused to utilize the version due to its gender-inclusive language and since it was published with a Catholic edition. A less controversial factor that somewhat limited its adoption was that many considered the version not to have as free-flowing and natural-sounding English as was possible. I went searching for a trivial story to wrap up this episode, similar to the debunked theory that Shakespeare contributed to the King James Version, but none was to be found. I thought that I could make up something, such as that Steven Spielberg was the Jewish scholar, or that George Lucas left mid-translation to work on some unknown script, but I decided against it. Instead, I'll leave you with this. Remember that when it was first published, the King James Version was neither well-received nor free of criticism by some. Nonetheless, it has sustained itself through time and is still highly regarded today, despite its defects, which were noted more clearly in the mid-19th century and even more so today. And, as was mentioned in previous episodes, the very groups of people, specifically the members of traditional Protestant churches who condemned the King James Version when it was first published, are the ones today who hold it up as the most accurate version available. So that's the episode for this week. Join me next week when I'll dive into the New International Version. As I mentioned last week, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. Comments, questions, and essentially any correspondence can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the term Christian History Podcast as three separate words. 
Thanks for listening and have a great week.